9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode. This is David Rothkopf. I'm your host, and I am very pleased to be joined today by uh, Michelle Flournoy, who is a co-founder and managing partner at West Exec Advisors, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and one of the most thoughtful commentators on national security policy that I know. Hi, Michelle. Hey, David. How are you? Thanks for having me. Very, very good to have you here. Um, So there's a lot of stuff about national security that's in the news right now today, and all of it gives us a kind of a jumping off point for talking about where we are between now and the election, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about what uh, things may look like after that. Uh, But the first thing is that the State Department seems to be talking about an agreement with the Taliban in Afghanistan that will uh, allegedly reduce violence, but uh, looks to be a predicate for um, drawing down uh, forces further or altogether and really handing the keys uh, to Afghanistan uh, back to the Taliban after two decades and an enormous amount of sacrifice and expense. What's your What's your take on this? So I, I do see it a little bit differently, and, and to caveat my response by saying nobody's seen the actual agreement yet. So we're just going on what the administration is saying and, and various reports in the news. But my understanding is that um, we're likely, if this is going to go forward, we'll see a, a seven-day reduction in violence across the country, um, starting with Taliban stopping the violence, but also the Afghans and the coalition forces. That and that within, you know, ten days or so, we would see the start of intra-Afghan negotiations, um, and then, you know, within 135 days, we would see a reduction of U.S. forces down to about 8,600. My understanding is that the any the reduction in U.S. forces to that level and beyond is contingent on. Um, several conditions, you know, promises the Taliban's made. One, that they would actually reject and oppose, uh, even fight uh, al-Qaeda and ISIS in areas they control. And two, that the reduction in violence would eventually become a comprehensive ceasefire and a sustained, you know, uh, uh, sort of ending of the the war or the, the violence or much of it. Um, and that these inter-Afghan negotiations would be well underway towards a peace settlement. My hope would be that the U.S. government would not withdraw uh, troops until that, you know, those negotiations result uh, in an actual political settlement. I think the real leverage the U.S. has is, A, our troop presence, and B, pledging international assistance to, you know, whatever government comes out of the <clears throat> negotiations. Um, my fear is that we have a president who might want to just pull all the troops out as a campaign stunt, you know, heading into re-election. 
and throw away all that leverage and, you know, sort of create a, a, a cri- an unnecessary crisis and probably, uh, um, you know, a collapse of things in Afghanistan, which, as you suggested, would be a terrible outcome after so much sacrifice. Yeah, and perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm framing it in a slightly cynical way, although it's informed by the experience that we've had there um, since 2001. But with regard to the timeline that you've laid out, the scenario that you've laid out, a lot of it depends on the degree to which we um, can trust the Taliban, quite apart from whatever Trump's political motives may be. Do you, do you see them as a reliable negotiating partner? I don't think I would say I want to trust them, but I think we have to see whether they do what they say they've pledged to do. You know, well, do they do do they really participate in the seven day reduction in violence and is it substantial? Do they show up to negotiate with the Afghan government, which they've always refused to do, and with representatives of Afghan civil society, including women uh, and youth and so forth? Um, do they actually uh, conduct operations against ISIS-K or al-Qaeda in their areas? I mean, I think it's more a question of do they actually do what they're supposed to do? And if not, then I think this whole process will fall apart. Yeah. And of course, if, as you say, Trump's goal is political and he and, and he's not really focused on the long term, but wants to say, look, I ended this one of the forever wars, then... Uh, we may end up with that. And, you know, we've seen yeah. his behavior in this regard elsewhere, right? So in Syria, right. um, he, he cut this deal with Erdogan. They came in. And recent reports in the past few days from the United Nations suggest that Syria is on the verge of yet another humanitarian catastrophe and possibly a mass uh, slaughter. So this this is a, a you know, a, a prior indication of what Trump's priorities may be. What's your take yeah. on the situation in Syria? Oh, I think it's it's tragic and deeply disturbing. Um, I do think that certainly the displacement um, of some of the people who were in areas controlled by our Kurdish allies uh, and the SDF, the Syrian Defense Forces, you know, that's on us. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, the United States abandoned a battlefield ally with no warning and no plan. Um, and, you know, even though um, it's, it's unforgivable, I, and it's something that, you know, talking to kind of field grade officers in the U.S. military, first time I've heard them openly express, you know, opposition and almost as point of saying, you know, I've had one person say to me, I feel this makes me feel physically sick to abandon an ally that shed blood alongside you is just a cardinal sin <laughs> in in the military. And this person was worried about what it would do to our ability to recruit coalition partners and allies in future situations if they don't think the United States is a reliable partner. But beyond that, the humanitarian situation in Syria is, um, is, is terrible. And uh, so the worst is not yet over. Um, and again, you know, the U.S. is sort of nowhere to be seen in terms of trying to lead some kind of resolution. Um, you know, it's, you know, the negotiations to the extent they're happening are happening led by Moscow, not by Washington. Yes, but possibly something that we could have anticipated, um, 
at the time that Trump made his decision. Another ally that we have left hanging in the lurch, um, of course, in the past couple of uh, months, um, <clears throat> is is Ukraine uh, in terms of not providing them with uh, aid that had been approved by the Congress, and that was central to the impeachment saga. This week, we saw uh, the current Undersecretary of Defense for Policy uh, step down. He seemed to be an internal critic of this policy. What do you take from that? What do you take from, you know, uh, 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 Rude stepping down and 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 does this reflect a sort of sense of of division or discomfort with Pentagon leadership and the White House? You know, I think Trump has now established a pretty clear take no prisoners policy with in terms of his expectation of absolute loyalty from his political appointees. Um, and so, you know, John Rood was the latest case, but, you know, look at the of the acting uh, director of national intelligence after his intelligence officials briefed their analysis um, on, the ha- on the Hill to the House Intelligence Commun- uh, Commun- Committee that, you know, Russia was at it again and interfering in our um, elections and seemed to be doing so to try to support uh, Trump's re-election. You know, look at the House cleaning he did of any of the folks who testified uh, during the impeachment um, hearings, both military and, and others. Look at the, um, you know, the appointment of a total loyalist who has no intelligence background, Grinnell, um, the ambassador to Germany, uh, to the DNI position. I mean, it's one thing after another. I mean, if you are disloyal or perceived as questioning the president in any way, even if it's done internally and not publicly, you know, you're at risk. And that has to have a horribly chilling effect inside the administration and, you know, not many people are going to voice dissent to this president. And that means he's he's even more at risk of making bad decisions. Well, I think one of the things that is especially unnerving about what you're describing is how pervasive it is at this point, though, you know, uh, over over three years into this administration where you have what you've described um, uh, at the Department of Defense, uh, you have what you described at the Director of National Intelligence level. Uh, you also have this at the State Department, uh, where Secretary of Pom- Secretary Pompeo uh, has identi- you know has been identified by many as, a, as not just a loyalist, but has been seen not to defend the Foreign Service officers who were you know, honoring their oath, whether it's Ambassador Yovanovitch or, uh, or others. Um, and you also have this within the NSC, which at, at, at the moment um, is, is being led by somebody who, you know, I would say after having studied the NSC for most of the past 20 years, um, is the least qualified national security advisor we've ever had, but he's also downsizing the NSC, eliminating key positions, and um, and 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 so across the board in this administration, 
There is loyalty without advice. There is a reduction in the number of advisors the president listens to. Um, and there is this chilling effect that you talk about where the message has gone out, um, don't cross the president. But of course, the president has taken positions that are not um, in the interests of, of U.S. national security, notably in the, in, in the area of Russian uh, potential you know, intervention in the 2020 elections, where he just doesn't want to hear bad news and he doesn't want the intelligence community to be reporting about any potential cyber disinformation initiatives. Um, so it's not just a management choice. It's a national security risk, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, he's hollowing out the expertise uh, and the professionalism of, you know, the key national security institutions across the board. It started in state, but as you said, it spread to all of the key players. Um, and so even for this final year of the administration, you've got a ton of vacant positions. You've got a number of people in acting capacity who are not going to be nominated or confirmed. Um, and so it's a, it's a gross weakening, particularly on the civilian side of the civil military equation, which is not healthy in a democracy. Um, and most of the senior military folks would be the first person people to say that. Um, and you have a terrible problem for whoever's next. I mean, say a Democrat wins and we have a new administration, there's a huge rebuilding effort that has to be done. And it's not easy to, so you can't simply manufacture 20 years of, of, you know, foreign policy experience. You know, there are several, I mean, I, something, I think it's over a hundred ambassador ranked foreign service officers who left the state department. You don't just replace them overnight. You can't grow them overnight. Um, so the question of whether you can get Congress to support some authorization to rehire some of the expertise that was driven out, um, but it's you know it's going to be a, a personnel crisis for whoever comes next uh, across these agencies. Have you ever seen anything like this? You know, I've seen um, smaller examples. I think you know I've heard stories that when Porter Goss was at the CIA. He so alienated the staff, particularly on the operations side, that they had a mass exodus of senior officers. But he left within a year. And in that case, they, the agency was able to get authorization from Congress that, you know, they brought back a very senior charismatic leader who went and systematically recruited others to come back and they were rehired. But this is, you know, this is a much longer period of time. A lot of people have moved on with their lives. This is at a scale that we've never seen. Um, so it's going to be challenging. Well, I think there's also an, a, a, you know, another subtext to this, uh, and that is that in some cases, the president has not just simply gutted the leadership ranks or replaced um, uh, professionals with loyalists. In some cases, he's actually kind of waging a war. Um, uh, in the case of the IC, not only do you have the, the, the example of him uh, uh, retaliating against them for reporting, apparently, to the Congress on what they saw as the 2020 threat, um, but you have him giving the responsibility to another loyalist, Bill Barr, uh, to do an investigation of, 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 of the IC and how they handled 
the Russia investigation in 2016, which is not only chilling, but it could have legal consequences. And then, you know, in, an, in another way, he has taken on the, 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 the culture and the values of the Pentagon um, by, for example, um, pardoning um, a Navy SEAL who's guilty of war crimes because he thinks it looks tough. But again, um, in my conversations with folks at the Pentagon, it was an extremely alienating uh, and divisive act. So mm-hmm. I'd be interested in your thoughts on those aspects of this. Absolutely. I mean, his uh, the president's intervention in the military justice system basically deprives the Navy SEAL community for, uh, you know, of its own uh, ability to hold its own accountable, responsible, and to re- reestablish good order and, and discipline. Um, the community, you know, I have not met a single person in uniform who approves of what the president did. Um, I think that community has the resilience and the leaders to regenerate and to reestablish uh, itself, but boy, the president made it a lot harder. Um, and similarly, when you look at his intervention in in a whole range of issues at the Justice Department, and you know, I think Bill Barr will go down in history as one of the most damaging attorney generals ever in the history of the Justice Department in terms of weakening the institution and politicizing uh, its activities. It's it's really. Uh, disturbing and dangerous. Um, so again, you have the personnel thing that you have to recover from. You also have this sort of systematic, as you say, war on institutions, weakening of critical institutions to our democracy. You know, the next person who comes in is that going to have to be really rigorous to try to reestablish some the, the norms of behavior, and in some ways maybe you know, hold themselves to an even higher than normal standard. If you're going to try to reset, uh, you know how things operate, because if we have another four years of this, I don't, you know, pe- there won't be any muscle memory as to what those norms traditionally have been across the bipartisan spectrum until Trump. Well, that brings us, you know, to the next dimension of this, which is, of course, you know, Trump. Uh, and his team are in charge of, of of our national security through January, but you know an election in November can change all of that. Do you think, looking at the field of Democratic candidates, that the national security policies and priorities uh, of the group are likely to be fairly consistent, uh, or do you see notable divisions within the field of Democratic candidates? There's a general belief um, in the importance of the U- of, of the rules-based international order and the U.S. leader, the role, the leadership role the U.S. has played in that over time, um, and that's pretty indispensable. But I do think there's some serious debates about, you know, particularly use of force, where, where and when and how the U.S. military should be deployed, how much we should be spending on defense versus other tools of national power, uh, you know, if we're in a competition with China, how do we compete? So I do think there are policy differences across, but I don't see, with the possible exception of Bernie Sanders, I don't see any of the Democratic candidates as outside the sort of bipartisan range of normal that we had before Trump. 
Um, and I think that any now any of them on the stage, uh, you know, except well, again, with the exception I noted, would probably would definitely be uh, a better commander in chief than Trump. Um, so, you know, I think you look at that stage and any combination you can imagine as a ticket is going to be less dangerous in the role of commander in chief than Trump is or another four years of Trump would be. Yeah, And I think. You know, even even in the example of a Bernie Sanders who has talked about major cutbacks in defense spending, we know presidents are unable to act alone. They tend to act in conjunction right. with the Congress, and and there are constraints. You know, I mean, you know, most major debates about defense budgets are talking about increments of a couple of percentage points up or down, not something much more dramatic than that. But even with a Bernie Sanders all the way across the spectrum to Mike Bloomberg, um, the desire to restore the international order, restore alliances, restore American leadership, um, uh, uh, restore the vitality of the US economy as a foundation of national security, restore respect for um, the intelligence community and the rule of law in the United States seems to be fairly consistent. So, I mean, does that strike you as a fair statement? No, I think that's right. And and I think the other key thing that there's a lot of consensus on is, you know, people acknowledge the rise of China and as a more competitive uh, force that something which, you know, presenting a number of economic technology security challenges to the United States. But I would say I suspect that every single person on that Democratic debate stage would agree with the notion that the, the number one thing we should do to compete well with China is to invest in the drivers of American competitiveness here at home. Science and technology, research and development, you know, STEM education, immigrate, smart immigration policy that welcomes the best and brightest in the United States and keeps them, tries to keep them here, you know, 21st century uh, infrastructure and so on. That, I think, would, you know, it would be pushed by every single person in the Democratic Party. And in my opinion, that is the strategic uh, number one step we need to take, you know, along with smart investment in defense for deterrence, you know, uh, vis-a-vis China. Yeah. I, I, by the way, I also think that one of the things that would distinguish the Democrats on on, on, on foreign policy and national security policy is the degree to which they prioritize things like fighting Climate crisis, um, which 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 Trump has has minimized. Um, so we only have a four or five minutes here, and I, I I'd like to sort of shift the focus now even beyond the election. Um, let's for a moment uh, assume that 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 a Democrat wins, and we end up uh, with the new president taking office on January twentieth of twenty twenty one. What what would you say? Um, are some of the key priorities for kind of first hundred days uh, in terms of national security policy that you would like to see from an administration? Things that could either reverse damage that has been done or address issues that have gone under addressed. Yeah, I think first a, a, a an early presidential speech that explicitly lays out a vision for America's role in the world, our respect for the rule of law, you know, that that, ta- that immediately communicates we are going to, you know, that, that Trump was 
uh, an aberration that we are resetting here. Fundamental reset's going to happen here. You know, watch this space. Um, so it clearly communicates that vision and then has a number of actions to, to show that. Um, I do think this idea of a plan to reinvest in America's competitiveness here at home is a key part of our, should be a key part of our national security agenda. Um, high on the list would be restoring uh, a respectful, uh, cordial relationships with our allies and partners around the world without whom we can't get a whole lot done. Um, I think some very strong early actions to um, re uh, to, to, to communicate a, a fundamental shift like, you know, rejoining the Paris Accord. Um, I think uh, some very strong steps uh, early like rejoining the Paris uh, Climate Accord and actually uh, setting even more ambitious goals for the international community to meet. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, champ championing nonproliferation and some of those other traditional uh, priorities. So I think there's a whole lot that the uh, president can do both in word and deed in 100 days to clearly communicate, you know, a fundamental shift uh, in, in U.S. foreign policy that, I, again, I think there'd be huge size of relief around the world. That said, I, I do think our allies now worry that if this is not just about Trump, um, that there's something more fundamental shifting in the United States. And I think it will take probably a couple of presidents to convince them um, that the United States has not fundamentally changed in terms of its willingness to play a leadership role and to you know, uh, set the example uh, in upholding the rule of law. Yeah, I think that's that's clearly true, and I think it's a very good point uh, to end on. You know, the period from George Bush to uh, Donald Trump has seen some ups and some downs, but uh, regardless of how you may come out on any of the presidents during that period, a lot of questions exist in the world about what the United States' role is going to be going forward. Um, and it's going to be up not just to the next president, but to uh, the next several and to the people who make national security policy uh, to answer those questions and to establish really what the U.S. leadership role is going to be in the world during the 21st century. One of the things that is encouraging to those of us who follow this closely, of course, is that people like Michelle hopefully will have leadership positions to help influence that. Uh, and I think listening to this conversation, you have gotten a good idea of why um, that would be so good for the country. And uh, we thank you, Michelle, for joining us and uh, hope to be able to talk to you over the months ahead as we go through the election and on and into the sure. next phase of this. Uh, so uh, thank you absolutely. very much. Absolutely. And thank you. And if I could just add one thing that inspires me is I continue to meet young people who still want to serve, who want to be part of the course correction and who want to be part of moving us forward. So that gives me, that's when I get really down about the state of affairs, that's what I think of, gives me hope. Uh, yeah, uh, an excellent point, and it is a great source of hope. Thank you, Michelle. And for uh, those of you who you. are interested in what else we have uh, going on here, go to the dsrnetwork.com and see our upcoming podcasts, two or three or four a week, and some upcoming events and some uh, other content. So go to the go to the website mm -hmm. and uh, become a member. Thank you all very much.